Wait, I just want to say one technical thing, which is that I, I'm accompanied today by a very committed and aggressive set of the sniffles. So I'll do my best to, uh, to keep it humble. Carrie and I should give you the Quaker sniffles. They're absolutely silent. <laughs> With a lot of wisdom. <laughs> you never know whether a Quaker is laughing or crying. <laughs> to the words and habit to us and how we live between the words. Well, I'm just delighted to introduce Ariel Berger to our audience. I want to say very simply that he's been my friend for the past 15 or so years, a great guy with an open and generous mind and heart who puts good ideas into action, and a wonderful conversation partner from whom I've learned so much. But let me provide a few more details than, than that. Um, Ariel is the author of a wonderful, wonderful book called Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom. I'm going to assume that most of our audience know who Elie Wiesel was, but just for those who need a little refresher, he was a Romanian-born American writer, professor, and political activist, and a Holocaust survivor, 1986 winner of the Nobel Prize. He authored 57 books, including Night, which is probably his best-known work, based on his experiences as a prisoner at Auschwitz and Buchenwald. His Nobel Prize citation read, For being a messenger to mankind, with a message of peace, atonement, and dignity. Ariel Berger is a spokesperson for Elie Wiesel's life and work. He knew Elie Wiesel very, very well from, what, 15 onward, as I remember, and eventually ended up working with Elie Wiesel at Boston University and receiving a Ph.D., uh, in Jewish studies and conflict resolution under Elie Wiesel's guidance. So he, he knew this man's work inside and out and has created a book in this book, Witness, Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, that gives us the great gift of helping us understand Elie Wiesel's pedagogy, how teaching and learning happened under his guidance. I think about that a lot because so much teaching and learning needs to happen in our conflicted environment these days. And Ariel Berger is the perfect person to carry that forward. He not only has a lot of ideas on this subject that are well-grounded in his experience, personal experience over many years with Elie Wiesel, he, he's also put his ideas into action, uh, especially with <clears throat> the Witness Institute which has gathered fellows from around the world who are engaged in peacekeeping and peacemaking in a variety of forms, and we'll be learning more about that today. But basically, a great guy with an open and generous mind and heart who puts good ideas into action, and a dear friend of mine and now ours, carries in mine as well. So, Ariel, a warm, warm welcome to The Growing Edge. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much, Parker. So great to be with you and Carrie. Welcome for me as well. I I'm I I have just loved encountering your um, your work, uh, the book Witness, your artwork. You're also a, an artist and a musician. Um, your many conversations with Parker with the Witness Project. I'm just really delighted to have you on the show today and just so touched that you're here with us. A lot of times it's been great to start with a little backstory, you know, a little bit about how you came to study with uh, Elie Wiesel and, and later became uh, his friend and assistant. And can you tell us just a little bit more about your journey? I can. Um, as Parker said, I was a teenager in New York. Um, really, it started with questions as Parker, I think my relationship with you also started with questions about writing and vocation. Much earlier than we met, I was asking a lot of questions about mainly about two things. One was the relationship between 
tradition and creativity. As someone who grew up in the deeply committed, connected, immersive kind of Jewish environment of the, the Orthodox Jewish community, in part, that was part of my upbringing, but someone who was also a really artsy kid. I was drawing and, and painting all the time and reading mythology and folk tales and fairy tales and thinking about the relationship between this this heritage, which was weighty, which was, was heavy on my shoulders, but also lifted me up in some ways. I love the learning. I love the ritual practices. But I didn't see a lot of room at the time for the kind of personal creativity that I was being drawn towards as a young artist. That was one set of questions. And the other was about really about inclusion and what does it mean to create spaces? I didn't have this language at the time, but spaces where no one would feel marginalized or unseen. And that came in large part because my older sister is blind and I was very keenly aware of how how she experienced communal spaces and how people related to her, often with a lot of warmth, but sometimes with with a sense of um, difficulty in connecting. And so after one of Elie Wiesel's lectures at the 92nd Street Y in New York, uh, where he lectured for about, I think, 40 years, um, there was a reception and I had a chance to meet him. And the stunning thing for me was that he when it was my turn to say hello to him, he held his hand out to me and he said his name as if I had no idea who he was with just tremendous humility and openness. And then he said, come visit me and bring a question. And so that was the beginning really of a lifelong relationship of asking questions, especially questions that that I just couldn't find anyone else to ask. Um, and he usually responded with more questions mm-hmm. in very you know, this is kind of a traditional Jewish way of responding. And um, there are jokes about it, but he really responded with questions. But his questions were much better than mine usually. So I I always came away with a sense of clarity and and encouragement. And later I enrolled in Boston University in order to study with him. And then still later I became his teaching assistant. And we had a lot of moments together in, in, in private conversations, but also in the classroom where he was interacting with students from around the world. And this became a big part of my my relationship with him and my thinking in general about uh, how does powerful moral education work? How does it actually happen? And I, I had the privilege of seeing it in play for several years and uh, taking a lot of notes and paying attention to some of the tools and methods that he used to really awaken and unleash the power of compassion among among students. You know, we talk a lot about how amazing it is that some people are able to take absolutely deadly, brutalizing experiences, experiences of, of radical dehumanization, and instead of carrying them into a life of bitterness and resentment and world rejection, they carry them into a life of, of love. Um, and questioning is often a, such an important part of that. I, I think you're one of those people whom I've met along the way who really lives into what Rainer Maria Rilke said about the importance of living the questions, not, not just asking them, but, but living them. So I, I'd love to ask, as part of this exploration of the background you bring uh, as a rabbi, as a scholar, as a, le- a thought leader and action leader. What did you learn from Elie Wiesel about the alchemy of turning murderous experience into a gift of life and love to the world? Well, I want to I want to respond with a question, which is, what did I what did I not learn? <laughs> but, but, may I, may I just say that's a typical rabbinical trick. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you use the word alchemy, which is the word I think of when I when it comes to this subject as well, because there's something so mysterious about it. You know, alchemists were were on a, a generations long enduring quest to 
to transmute matter into something else, into other matter or into spirit. And this question of how how can we transform our own suffering because we all suffer, and especially the kind of radical, the radical the suffering of people who experience oppression or genocide or war and conflict or hunger and homelessness or other kinds of traumas into a positive motivation for for positive and compassionate action. There's something mysterious about it. So I, I don't think I have an answer. I think what I learned from Professor Wiesel was um, responses, responses to suffering. And the first principle that he taught me and many others is that to answer suffering is actually offensive. To provide a, an answer for anyone else's suffering, perhaps even my own suffering, is is ineffective and it often it often can be offensive. There were people who tried to explain theologically, philosophically, why the Holocaust happened. There were Jewish leaders who who made statements about that over the several years after World War II. There's something fundamentally absurd and unsatisfying about that. You cannot explain the murder of a million and a half children based on any theological or political argument. It's just not possible, and it's offensive. And and so the Holocaust in particular defies any explanations and any answers. And in a certain way, it can liberate us from the quest for answers and point us to something else, which is responses. And responses are embodied ways of continuing to act based on the experience in order to make sure that that experience never happens again to anyone else. And that's what Elie Wiesel did in his life. So the, f- the first thing I learned from him really was uh, just looking at him as a person of surprisingly great joy and humor and learning over time that he he loved to tell jokes and he loved his students and he had incredible joy from from learning and he loved music and he always had a song in his head. Um, that model taught me that it's possible. First of all, it's possible, even for someone who went through the deepest, most ineffable, most profound darkness to choose life and to choose a life of, of giving life and of helping and of bearing witness to others and to working to make the world better. Just knowing that it's possible and being freed of the need to answer things, to answer these difficult, enduring questions, creates a kind of space where now I know that if he could do it with his suffering, which I can't even imagine, even after having studied it for many years, I can certainly do it with my my modest suffering. And, and my, my forms of suffering feel very real to me, but it's always possible to respond and to turn to turn the experience into some kind of learning or some kind of commitment or some kind of introspective moment or some kind of a connection with somebody else. And that that becomes a kind of engine, an alchemical engine over time. There's a lot more to say, but that's the starting point of really what I learned from him about this. Yeah, I find that a really powerful answer. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of the person who whose young child dies and someone comes along and says, well, that just means God has a plan for your life. Mm. And how deeply, profoundly offensive and really inhumane that is. And somehow the drive for answers is what creates the worst kind of political and religious ideologies, right? That aren't, aren't just offensive on an individual level, but on the level of a whole society. I mean, I think you could actually make a case that strongman politics and ultimately fascism come from a misguided quest for answers to big, big questions that we just need, we need to learn to hold, we need to learn to live into, we need to learn to let them open our hearts. And I love this idea that I, it came to me here today in a new way, Ariel, hearing you talk, that to be a responsible person means to be able to respond mm-hmm. and to respond in this in this open-hearted way with a sort of question to the cosmos 
um, help me find my way into this absolutely perplexing conundrum without, without clinging to false answers, but help me find a living response to it. Yeah, Professor Wiesel said often fanatics have fanatics only have answers, mm -hmm. and they hate questions. Yeah, and and I have no answers, only questions, and that's why we find ourselves on opposite sides of the world of the moral universe. Um, but it, it it takes some muscle building, I think, to become comfortable with the discomfort of unresolved questions, and it, it's certainly possible. But it's a kind of practice to to live into and become more and more familiar with. And that the questions that, that the questions can lead us higher, can lead us to response and new response. And and that uh, I was very touched in, in the book how you talked a lot about as a response to despair, to respond with hope, respond with service, respond with uh, another kind of spirit. Um, yeah, could you say a little bit more about that response and, and resistance to despair? Yeah, it's such an important it's such an important principle that um, it's really the one of the first things that we explore now in our fellowship, because before we get into anything having to do with being a witness and bearing witness and taking responsibility for the world around us, we have to first commit to hope as a choice, as a moral choice, or otherwise very quickly we're going to we're going to be tempted by despair. I mean, to look at the world is to be tempted by despair. Uh, and I think a lot of us are feeling that right now. Um, what Professor Wiesel taught, and it's really drawing on, on Jewish teachings and some Jewish mystical teachings in particular, is that hope is not a feeling. Hope mm. is a choice. Yeah. Hope is a moral choice. And, and I would add that hope in many moments is the first moral choice because it's the choice that allows you to continue making positive choices. And if, if the person gives into despair, then they are, they are basically joining the ranks of the indifferent bystanders who allow terrible things to happen in this world without lifting a finger. And a lot of those bystanders are not evil people. They're just overwhelmed by the sense of despair and powerlessness that we all wrestle with. But they're the people who turn away from the world and go back to watching their favorite show to distract themselves and not occasionally it's okay to do that occasionally but we need breaks too but as a way of living as a basic orientation and we know that that's that's what happened during world war ii and it happens today all over the world and something we have to really wrestle with so the commitment to look at the world and not look away means and implies the commitment to choose hope and the possibility of action no matter what now, it's very difficult to do sometimes, and it's important to say that, you know, it's, it's much easier to talk about this than to really break through those moments of darkness. Um, and I'm not talking here about clinical depression, which is an entirely different category, but, but just the, the, sense of, the sense of encountering darkness we feel when we read the news these days, and I think any days if we're paying attention. And so... One of the things that we learn and experiment with constantly is how to support one another and hold one another up in small circles of people in small communities or even two friends together. And to make that a formal practice, I think, is really important to think about today. I mean, we, many of us practice meditation of various kinds. Um, what would it look like to have a weekly practice of connecting with a friend to reach for hope together, to, to share our, our despair with one another, that in spite of everything, we're not going to look away from the world, we're not going to numb out, but we're also not going to fall into despair. Right. And I think in our current context, which is where we want to eventually to go with this conversation, um, it might be important also to say a couple of things that Carrie and I explore a great deal with our guests. One is that the other way that despair can turn, uh, an alternative to becoming a couch potato, is to turn toward violence. Um, I think January 6th, we saw a lot of people who have, for either real or imagined reasons, 
been sinking into despair. And they decided that, you know, they could get out of that by trashing the nation's capital. Um, because violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. And I think the other piece that Carrie and I explore a lot is that it, it's really important to, to recalculate or refigure what an act of hope might look like. Because for a lot of us, that means a big headline-grabbing thing that we're incapable of doing, something that will change the dance and turn, if not the world, at least our state or our community or our neighborhood around. And we're not going to be able to do things like that. But we can give a child hope. We can give a friend hope. We can act hopefully in a variety of ways within the confines of our of our private lives. So I wanted to ask you to to dive a little more deeply into the current situation by by talking about the serious threats to democracy that we now see in the United States, where a lot of people aren't asking those creative, generative questions, but they're instead grabbing on to facile, easy, and false answers. Conspiracy theories being a great example of you know, why things are wrong for them or for their neighbors or, or maybe for a lot of us. One of the things that strikes me is that Elie Wiesel's work and, and your work around issues related to the Holocaust meet even today with denialism. And there's a tremendous amount of denialism going on right now <clears throat> about the plight of American democracy. You know, there's this somehow utterly bogus debate in my mind about <clears throat> good people on both sides of issues like white supremacy or anti-Semitism or democracy itself. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear you explore a bit how you saw Elie Wiesel and how you yourself deal with denialism in, in the face of incontrovertible historical facts. Yeah, yeah, this is so, so difficult and important. And there's, there's denial, there's also the kind of entropic force of forgetfulness. So the Holocaust, the memory of the Holocaust is, is instructive, because we have, we have many studies and surveys from from the last, you know, five or six years, including some very recent ones, that show that 63% of millennials in this country couldn't identify the word Auschwitz, couldn't define the word Auschwitz, and 23% couldn't explain what the Holocaust was. And it wasn't so long ago. We're not talking about something that happened 500 years ago. And so the role of memory in keeping our awareness of, of moral issues, of compassion and justice, and the need to fight for those things, and to consistently build and deepen relationships and questions in the service of that quest for compassion and justice, it's, it's critically important and it's endangered. And so uh, we have kind of a, a double threat. One is the, the deliberate denial, not only of the Holocaust, but of fundamental categories of, of, of human ethics um, and the kinds, of, the kinds of sensitivities we need to cultivate if we're going to save our world and our country. And we also have the kind of natural entropic forgetfulness that happens when we don't have active positive education. And so much of our discourse in general in this country is, is so um, shaped by superficial factors, you know, reality TV and, and, other, and other factors that kind of narrow the discourse and the ways we engage with big questions and big issues. And, and so much of the, the tools, so many of the tools that we bring to the questions that we face are, are very cerebral and heady. And we're used to a kind of discourse in this country of debate and punchline and tagline. And um, we know that the questions that we're facing about what democracy is and needs to become and what we can learn from experiments of the past and how we can invest in and, and create 
really design citizens of the country we want to see? You know, those are big, enduring questions. Those are not the kind of things that we're going to answer on a talk show in, in, in half an hour. And, and, and yet we're expected to, to um, give so much of our attention to the latest uh, flaring moment in the news cycle. And, and, you know, we're experiencing a kind of moral attention deficit disorder. And, and so even when it comes to real issues, you know, the, the war in Ukraine is heartbreaking and requires a lot of our attention. And we need to be speaking up, learning, questioning and acting. But we also have to remember the Uyghurs. And we also have to remember what's happening in places like Myanmar and Syria and Yemen. And it's very difficult for us to do all of this without a very strong hope engine, like we were talking about before, or it becomes overwhelming. But we have to, we have to question our own ways of thinking. Um, there's a there's a beautiful teaching. It's a Hasidic teaching, which is a, a the the Jewish spiritual revival movement from 200 years ago in Eastern Europe. That Parker, you and I have talked about a lot. I know has has inspired you, um, and has inspired me too. And it's the tradition in which Elie Wiesel grew up. There's a beautiful teaching from a Hasidic master named Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, who says, when two people speak at the same time, it's cacophony. When two people sing at the same time, it's harmony. Mm-hmm. And and Carrie, I think of your beautiful harmonies. And I was just listening this morning um, to "It's a Long Way Up," and it's just so such a. Each time I hear that, each time I hear powerful, beautiful harmony, it's a reminder that multiple voices can coexist. Yeah. But what happens when someone comes in with a deliberate intent to create dissonance, not for the sake of learning or deepening the conversation, but in order to destroy? What are the limits of that kind of openness and pluralism? And Parker, I think that's that was what's your what you're pointing us to is that there are limits, and it's really important to say that Professor Wiesel was such an open-minded person. He was such a generous listener, and he would engage people from across political and other ideological lines and perspectives with great respect and true a true sense of listening. But he would never debate or engage in dialogue with a Holocaust denier. Mm-hmm. There are limits yeah. because to debate is to dignify, right? So there are some positions that are that really need to be that really need to be beyond the pale. And the question of where that line exactly needs to be drawn is very difficult right now because we fall into two traps. One is we we fail to marginalize deliberately destructive voices in in the service of our idealism, our ideal of pluralism, we allow people in who are trying to poison the conversation. That That is an unfortunate reality. And on the other hand, we marginalize people who disagree with us as if they're fascists and Holocaust deniers or supremacists, but but they're not. They're, sometimes they actually just they disagree with us and their position, their thoughtful, considered position is a challenge to my own. And so the, the meta question here is, where do I apply the sort of discernment and where do I apply a kind of open hand of welcoming and acceptance, even if it's uncomfortable for me? And this is, I think, one of the hardest questions for us right now in this country and around the world. Uh, And I think the one of the I intuit, I should say, I intuit that one of the one of the pieces of the response might be music. Mm -hmm. It might have to do with going beyond words and connecting at a different level of discourse. Well, there was, um, uh, in the book, there was a, a, a part where you were uh, describing um, how he would talk about a, a respect for differences, that yes, it is important to see how we're united, where we overlap as human beings in, in, in beautiful ways, but also to not, um, uh, I guess, uh, deny or diminish uh, the beauty of our individuality too, and our differences, and and how important that was. And there was a, a part in the book where I just was really it just knocked me down to my knees. It was just like, you know, with respectful um, disagreement, that uh, when we can stand back enough to respectfully disagree, it creates a space, and within that space something novel, something creative can happen. 
And just that description, I just had to close the book, sit down and think about that, you know. And also this idea of uh, music, of art, being able to find out how our dialogue can be furthered in ways beyond speech. You know, that's such an important conversation. As a musician, I think about that as a poet. You know, what are the ways that we can step back enough to create that open space? And what are the things that can happen in that open space? Carrie, that teaching is from the same Hasidic master, Rabbi Nachman. Yeah. But but hearing you say it, I, I heard it as if for the first time. So thank you for giving it back to me. Something in the way that you just said that felt completely new to me. Um, it's such a powerful perspective and way of entering what could be a threatening, challenging conversation. And, you know, I really, I try for a long time now, I've, I've been trying to practice that and build that muscle where, you know, if someone comes to me with a, with a, a real challenge or a real question or um, a perspective that I find problematic, and this is, this is the real challenge, I will try to open that space and search for the opportunity and the potential that something wants to come through this interaction, something wants to be born here. I also have in the back of my mind and a kind of alertness for the, the destructive potential that sometimes people do bring. I, I, you know, you can sort of tell if somebody is asking a question or making a statement and the statement is designed to cynically um, undermine hope or something like that. You can sort of yeah. tell when that's coming sometimes. And sometimes it takes a little while, but this is the challenge is the, the kind of mind split. Part of the mind has to be alert and aware there are bad actors out there, but the majority of the mind, I think, my mind at least, I hope, is open and embracing. And I'm considering, well, how can we partner here on something that that uses the building blocks of our disagreement and our different perspectives and our different life experiences? One of the best ways I know to, to do that in, in a practical way is to shift the conversation from, from the policy or the opinion, which is where we hang out a lot in nowadays in, in America um, to the stories behind those policies mm -hmm. and those opinions. Yeah. So just asking, you know, how did you arrive at what's what personal experience got you there? You know, how did you develop that worldview or that particular view on a particular policy? And people will often tell stories of heartbreak yeah. and it doesn't matter if they're conservative, progressive or, or anything else. Their positions are are really rooted in human experience. And I can't argue with a story in the way that I can argue with a policy or an opinion. And the story often brings us closer. So so keeping that space is is delicate. And shifting from policy to story is one very good first move mm -hmm. that I found helpful. Um, but then going beyond that to what you were talking about, going beyond that to music and to art and to the space between the words, even to silence, um, which I know you both spend a lot of time in, um, in your practices, is, you know, those things are, are countercultural. Those things feel like acts of subversion and resistance in and of themselves, regardless of what comes out of the conversation. Just, just saying, wait, let's pause and sing together, or let's pause and let's be silent together for a few minutes. Those are, those are to me essential essential acts of resistance and acts of preserving democracy today. They're not luxuries. They're the kinds of things we absolutely need if we're going to turn the tide and maintain our human connection across all of the differences that matter. Yeah. I don't know if you're supposed to say preach it brother to a rabbi, but I want to say <laughs> preach it brother. <laughs> so, Wait, let me look it up. It's, it's permitted. It's permitted. Yeah, okay. It's, it's somewhere in Torah or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I was just smiling to myself, Ariel, because I remember a lunch at our house when the silence went on so long, I thought we might not get to eat. And that, <laughs> that, that was distressing to me. I almost quit Quakerism and became a Presbyterian at that point. So this rich conversation, I wonder if we can bring uh, weave together two important threads of your life. Carrie opened up your life as an artist, your, really your spiritual life, and some of its underpinnings. 
And, and we all know that to make this kind of space outside of ourselves, we have to have that space inside of ourselves. And that that's cultivated by practices, different practices for different people. I'm aware of some of yours. I, I know you're an observant Jew uh, around many Orthodox practices. And I know that there's this big stream of Hasidic uh, spirit running through your work and life, as well as Elie Wiesel's. So I'm wondering what you can share about the practices that you find helpful in keeping that inner space open, and then to join that with the very outward-facing work of the Witness Institute, mm -hmm. which I'd be glad, we'd both be glad for you to say a few more things about because you have now you're now gathering, as I recall, your second class of fellows uh, in That's this right. in this wonderful, wonderful project, which you're doing hand in hand with um, with uh, Elie Wiesel's his son, son Alicia, his son, Alicia, yeah, right, exactly, and with the blessing of an amazing letter from Elie Wiesel about you and his trust in you for for carrying th this work forward. So if you can kind of play with those two themes, um, it, it will help our listeners know more about the scope and range of your work and your spiritual life. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Parker, for that um, framing and invitation. You know, it's, it starts with two things. What, everything I'm doing right now is really motivated by the, the sense of urgency that we all feel and the sense of um, wanting to do something to help. And we all feel that sense of urgency and frustration. And, you know, a lot of us wake up in the morning and, and ask that question you alluded to earlier, what can I do? What can I do? It's not going to be, you know, uh, a global impact, globally impactful uh, project necessarily. If where, where can I really exercise my, my power to make a difference? How do I do that? How do I figure out what the right way is to go when there's so many people hurting right now. Um, and, and we have more and more access to, to that information than ever before. So it's as human beings, we're easily overwhelmed, but we're also easily sensitized to the suffering of others. And so we have more and more images from around the world and from our own communities of injustices and, and, and war and conflict and hunger and so on. And so we have to respond to that. And I feel that like anyone else feels that and ask a lot of questions about how to support others who are feeling that way. And the other part of this is really acknowledging that the tools and the perspectives that got us into this mess are not going to get us out. Mm -hmm. And so the, the really the starting point for the Witness Institute and, and it, it tracks to my own experience of spiritual practice and art and so on is that we have to radically widen our our repertoire of tools and methods for uh, for how we live our lives and how we engage in our own healing and how we lift one another up and how we inquire together into difficult questions and how we make the world better and it's easy to talk about it's easy to repeat platitudes about it, it's very hard to do. And it requires real inner work and muscle building, capacity building, and some transformative work. So that's the starting point. You know, my my own life experience has been a mix of kind of quirky, somewhat marginal formative experiences on the edges of, of things, on the edges of Jewish life and my encounter with Hasidic tradition as a young person. Uh, which was not well known at the time, even in the traditional Orthodox community where I lived, um, or at least it wasn't spoken about or shared. I had I I had Hasidic rabbis teaching me when I was six, seven, eight years old, and they they never talked about Hasidic teachings. Um, they were teaching the basics. They were teaching the Bible and commentaries and the Talmud and commentaries, and and that was all great, but. When I was 17 and discovered Professor Wiesel's book, Souls on Fire, which I highly recommend to anyone listening, uh, it's, it's a storytelling book of the Hasidic masters. And then I discovered Martin Buber's Tales of the Hasidim. 
I was just blown away and I felt that something precious in my own tradition had been kept from me. And I was so eager to learn about this because the stories are all about nonconformity, a kind of sacred nonconformity and creativity and the quest to become the best version of yourself that you can be and friendship and open heartedness. And so uh, that really led me to all the all the experiences that I consider really formative in my life. They're all they're all kind of um, on the edges. And and so my practices nowadays really are two two kind of sets of things. One is traditional Hasidic uh, spiritual practice and the other is art and music. And they're very deeply related for me Uh, in both cases there's a shift, there's a fundamental shift from trying to make things happen to creating space to allow things to come through. Yeah. There's, there's an intelligence here, you know, in this conversation, there's, there's something happening that never happens anywhere else and won't happen ever again. Even if we talked again tomorrow, there's something that wants to come through us. And in every moment, I think that's true. And so, whereas I, when I was younger, I used to try to figure it out Mm -hmm. and make a plan and impose the plan on reality and accomplish whatever I was hoping to accomplish. I still have some of that, but I, I'm much more, I'm much more of the mind and heart now of, of kind of letting something come through and creating the conditions for that to happen. And so my own practice has a lot to do with making space. So I, I wake up before dawn and, and spend time in, in unscripted personal meditation, prayer, it's a practice, a Hasidic practice. And then I pray the morning, the traditional morning service, watching the sunrise. And and then I study, uh, usually Talmud and some other texts, Hasidic texts and earlier teachings. And, and then in my art making and music making practice, it's all about letting things come through. So if I'm praying or if I'm painting or if I'm pressing record and playing guitar and singing, I'm kind of coming with a lot of humility, knowing that I don't really have a plan. And my plan is, is whatever my plan is, is certainly inadequate to the moment. And I think the same thing is true about moral education and moral activism and moral leadership, that we need plans and we need efforts and we need to be strategic. We also need a place of humility to recognize that something surprising can happen through us if we are investing time and energy and attention in becoming people of compassion and people who reflect and question ourselves and share questions with others and people who sing. And that's what we're trying to do in the Witness Institute really is create expanding circles of people who are learning together, exploring Professor Wiesel's life and teachings exploring great literature and tools and practices for reflection, for compassion, very importantly to say for courage as well. How do we manage our own fear, our own grief, our own anger as we look at the world? How do we choose hope? How do we support one another? How do we translate all of that into action? And so um, the Witness Fellowship, which Parker, you mentioned, uh, has... um, we now have two cohorts of fellows who are involved in this process of learning together and supporting one another and inquiring together, but they also are all committed, each committed to creating a project that they bring back to their communities to translate what we do together and what we explore in, into action. And that takes a bunch of different forms that are all incredibly inspiring um, and often surprising. We're very interested in surprising juxtapositions and wild creativity when it comes to addressing moral questions and pressing social problems in our communities and around the world. So that's that's where all of this comes together. We need the wildness and we need the kind of sense of experimentation and permission to play in addressing very serious issues. And so the tone of all of this is it's very serious and it's also very light at the same time, because without that lightness, we become overwhelmed by heaviness and without the wild creativity we're just recycling solutions and we need radically different solutions nowadays and different responses and we need to try things with a sense of adventure that sounds very hasidic yeah <laughs> and I, I, I do love 
Oh, your description of the creative process of, of creating a, a space for something to happen, for what will come through, and kind of a trust in that, that if I study, if I pray, if I um, step into my life with a particular spirit, if I hold my guitar and allow something to come through, it will. Sometimes not what I expect, but um, but something comes through and what was meant to come through at that time. I think art and the creation of art, for me, it's been an, a, a deep spiritual practice as well as an artistic practice. It sounds like we have a similar uh, experience with that, but, but also uh, a way of responding, responding to what's heavy in the world, responding to grief, responding to fear, responding to anger, responding to that's something I catch the corner of my eye and I don't have language for. So I put it in a song, you know? I, I really loved your description because I said, oh, yes, something comes through. And I think it comes through in conversations if we create that kind of space, if we're open to something perhaps we weren't expecting, new solutions. I, I, I really um, admire this work of the uh, Witness Institute that not just recycling old solutions, but asking, continuing to ask those life-giving questions that aren't easy. I mean, this it sounds so simple. Oh, just keep asking questions. Living with the uncertainty of a question that may never be answered, or the answer will continue to evolve. Um, we do have a recording of one of your songs, and we'd love to play a bit of it for people. Also, on our website, uh, we'll be putting up one of um, one of your works of art. Uh, people can go to your website, um, and we'll have those links all there. So to see more of your art, and also to see more about the Witness Institute, and um, links to some of your conversations uh, and um, and talks, and more about the book. I just want to say that. Um that on the Witness Institute uh, website, there's a contact button that goes to my email. So if anyone has any, you know, thoughts or wants to reach out just to sort of continue the conversation, uh, you know, I, I know that I know that your community of listeners uh, is composed of people who I would I would very naturally connect with and I would love to be connected to more. So. That's, I'm extending an invitation um, if people want to reach out and, and share their thoughts or ideas or, or questions. I'd, I'd really welcome that. Great. Yeah, thank you. I don't know what to say to you. I'm sitting here alone. Throughout the goddamn telephone. Long ago. Rain is pouring down, it's November and it's not snow It's the month that you were born, it's the month I gotta go And I'm trying to find the right words to tell you Fires we tried our best to light up. They aren't burning anymore. Tried to marry the sun and moon. Like the alchemists of old, but it was too soon. Trying to cure ourselves of the longing, we found ourselves howling at the moon and the blue. Schools, 
could continue this conversation for hours, I think. Um, I, I've just been so moved, and there's so much I need to really think about of what we've just talked about so far. Um, but we are beginning to get close to our, our time of closing. Um, usually, we, mo- we when we have a, a conversation partner on, on the show, we, we ask, what's on your growing edge? It's kind of our... Our closing question. So what's on your growing edge? There are so many things, but what comes to mind first is how really how to link the work and the play. Uh, I'm looking for a word that captures work and play together, if you have any suggestions, because I feel like, you know, this is, this is serious and light, as I said, and, um, in the Witness Institute, we we laugh a lot and we sometimes cry together and we uh, explore very challenging intellectual questions. And, you know, I, I think all of that is really has led me to this place where we've gotten into some very deep territory and it's all been online so far mm. because of the pandemic. Mm. And so I think my question, my my, my growing edge really has to do with connecting that work, which is so rich and so profound and um, moving to the earth and to nature and to a more embodied kind of form of this work. What would it look like? And I'm asking this 
just personally for me, what would it look like to take this kind of uh, series of, of inquiries and, and texts and stories uh, that we explore together and really integrate it in a more embodied way mm-hmm. um, instead of what I'm experiencing now a lot personally, which is which is a, a go-to for me. It's, it's sort of the shadow side of my experience of, of spending a lot of years studying and sitting and studying, you know, moving the questions from the head to the heart I find relatively easy moving it into my feet Mm. is the growing edge for me. Uh And so I think about um, Abraham Joshua Heschel's famous quote after marching with Dr. King, I felt my feet were praying. Mm. Um, He, he also was drawing on Hasidic tradition there because there's a Hasidic teaching about bringing faith or consciousness from the head to the heart, to the feet. And I'm somewhere in that process now and I think in many ways, the world also, given the stakes um, of our environmental crisis and the urgency of that and the continuing devolution of that crisis, the moments that we hear about every few weeks or so of more glacier loss in, you know, in, in the Arctic and so on, it, it, we, have to, we have to embody what we're learning we have to embody our questions. We have to embody our teachings. We have to embody our songs. And I'm asking how to do that. I don't have a tradition for that yet. And so I, I, I have often asked our fellows in the Witness Institute, many of whom come from seriously embodied traditions of dance, um, what can you teach us? And what can you teach us on Zoom? Yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the real technical challenge um, so that our feet can express the same quest as our heads and our hearts. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, Ariel, I just want to say that um, hope is a theme that's run powerfully through this whole conversation. And I'm so glad that it's there as a thread of reflection in all of our lives. I'm sh- absolutely sure it's a thread in the lives of the people who are listening to this podcast. And I think hope comes, for me at least, from two places. One is a deep inward dive to keep reminding myself uh, I've made it this far. (laughs) And somebody, something, must have been helping me (laughs) along the way or I wouldn't be here to celebrate the fact that I've made it this far. I think every human being has his or her own version of that. The other source of hope for me is seeing it embodied in other people. And so certainly I see that embodied and have for a long time, even before I met you, uh, in the life of Elie Wiesel. But I see it also in your life, Ariel. Uh, I, I see it in the kind, quiet, intelligent, compassionate, hopeful way you process all of this experience and lift it up for us, for our consideration. I'm deeply grateful for that. And I'm deeply grateful for the fact that we've had a chance to kind of bottle some of it, I guess, on this podcast today. Thank you so much for being with us and blessings on your continuing journey. I mean, thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. 
and wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and that she is a fine witness. Thank you.